Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, actually chapter 5, we're going to be um, starting at the very end of chapter 4, verse 16, and we're going to do a few verses through the next section on 5, um, verse 10. So we're going, to, we're going to open this particular study. I want to give you a little historical context for those of you that are new with us today. Remember that Paul founded the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey about 51 AD, and he stayed there about 18 months. About four years later, he had been in Ephesus for probably two and a half years planting churches in Ephesus, and he got word that the church in Corinth was in deep trouble. There was a lot of divisions, a lot of quarreling, a tremendous amount of immorality there, so he wrote them some letters. Matter of fact, he wrote them four letters, of which we have two. Two are lost. First uh, Corinthians, he dealt with their division, with their moral problems, uh, and then he answered specific questions in 1 Corinthians 7 through 16. In 2 Corinthians, this is a very, very intimate, very autobiographical uh, epistle. It's probably the most personal letter of anything Paul wrote. You really see his heartbeat, you see his humanness, you see his, his blood, sweat, his tears, his love, his uh, brokenness, as well as his strength. And in this, in this book, he really defends his apostleship. So today we're going to take a look at when Paul discusses the hardships of the ministry and also his future hope. And he makes an astonishing claim in, uh, in these last few verses of chapter 4. He says he's suffering, and even though he is suffering, he is not discouraged. Even though he has hardship, he is not losing heart. He is not quitting despite the struggles, and neither should we. It's possible in a broken, fallen, discouraged, fighting world to experience courage and hope and joy. And that's what we're going to talk about. Now, Paul had the street creds, as they say, to, to speak about hardship. If anybody had the credibility to speak about hardship, it's Paul. First of all, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, so he's appointed by God to speak to us. So he speaks from God to us with the authority of an apostle. And secondly, Paul was very authentic. When he speaks about struggle, he knows whereof he speaks because he has suffered more than anyone else for the cause of Christ. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Here's the principle. We are encouraged when we value spiritual maturity more than physical comfort. We are encouraged when we value spiritual maturity more than physical comfort. Now, Paul uses the word lose heart. Lose heart, that has to do with being timid or cowardly or fearful. But at the end of the day, if you lose heart, what do you do? You quit, right? You say, I'm done and bail out. And Paul says, even though our physical comfort, our physical bodies are undergoing vast decay and pain and suffering, we're not going to give up. 
in light of Paul's experience, he knows Christ, he's been preaching Christ, he understands the certainty of future resurrection, which he's going to talk about. He says, quitting is unthinkable, in spite of the fact that our outer man is decaying. And when he says outer man, he's talking about the human body. He's talking about our human body. He says our human body is in fact decaying. As a matter of fact, in prior verses, he calls our human body clay pots, right? Or earthen vessels. And he says those earthen vessels are decaying. That means they're falling apart. And looking around the room. <laughs> yeah, I looked in the mirror this morning and it was pretty frightening, you know. At least Marin can use makeup. Guys, there is no hope for us. I mean, it's not going to get any better. Washing it doesn't help a lot. There's nothing. Oh, anyway, so we're decaying. We're falling apart, and we begin decaying the day we're born. As a matter of fact, if you want an interesting commentary on the processes of decay, from the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, late in life, matter of fact, probably near the end of his life, he died at 60, which is pretty young, wrote Ecclesiastes in the very last chapter of Ecclesiastes 12, he describes us, right? And he says, remember also your creator in the day of your youth before the evil days come near and the deers draw nigh when you say, I have no delight in them. That means I have regrets about life, right? Before the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. So he's giving us an allegory of aging. Listen to his allegory. He says, the watchmen of the house tremble. That's your arms and your hands. They get shaky. The mighty men stoop. The largest muscles in the body are the leg muscles and they weaken and they begin to bend and they don't hold us up too well. He says, the grinding ones stand idle. Yeah, I know some of you have fewer teeth than you had before, too. Those who look through windows grow dim. He's talking about the eyes. He's talking about cataracts, right? One will arise at the sound of a bird. How many of you are sleeping lighter now than you did back in the day? Yes? Yes. How many of us don't sleep very much at all? Okay, yeah, we can relate to that, yeah. It says, all the daughters of song will sing... We can't hear as well, right? He says, men are afraid of high places. Our balance gets shaky, right? We're fear of falling, bones break easier. He says, there's terrors on the road as you age. That means uneven surfaces. How many of you are more careful on uneven surfaces today than you were? How many of you are really grateful for these handrails? Yes. I need one by the side of the bed now to make sure I don't trip you on the way out. He says, almond blossoms turn white. What would that look like? You know, almond blossoms, yeah, your hair. The grasshopper drags himself along. Grasshoppers normally jump great distances. I don't know to any of us jumping uh, lately. It says, mourners go about in the street. He's talking about, what do mourners go about in the street for? A funeral. He's talking about your funeral, right? And then he says, the silver cord is broken, that's the spinal column. The golden bowl is crushed, that's the brain. The pitcher by the well is shattered, that's the heart. The wheel of the cistern is crushed, veins and arteries begin to plug up. When I read this, I say, I resemble that, right, you know? 
So Paul is writing about the body decaying, but his body's decaying even faster than most because he's had a lot of hardships. He's been subjected to beatings, multiple imprisonments, stoning, shipwrecks, lack of sleep, hard travel, hunger. Paul was old before his time. He was beheaded uh, probably about age 63. So he's probably within 10 years of that now. He's maybe 53, 54, 55. His circumstances were hard, but he says, I don't lose heart. I'm not quitting even though my circumstances are hard. He says, physically, we definitely will grow weaker every day, but spiritually, he said, we can grow stronger every day. So the reality is we can all grow weary and lose heart if we're not being renewed. That's a key word. He says the inner man, the spirit of us should be renewed every day. And when you renew something, what does that mean? It means that something's run out and it needs to be renewed. It needs to be made new. The reality is the troubles of life are always poking holes in our spiritual gas tank. Is that true? Sometimes we wake up and say the spiritual gas tank is a colander. It's a sieve. It leaks quickly, right? It needs to be filled up every day. We are cracked clay pots, as Paul said, and we need to be refilled every day because we leak. Yesterday's dosage of medication was good for how long? Yesterday. We need a new dose today. Physical exercise is only good for? One day, the day you do it, and then tomorrow another day. When you eat a healthy meal, that's only good until the next meal. In the same way, we need to fill our spiritual gas tank on a daily basis by feeding on God's word and fellowshipping with God in prayer. And Ephesians promises as we surrender each day, the Holy Spirit will make us stronger on the inside. So that spiritual strengthening Depends on the Holy Spirit's power, but it depends on our surrender and our feeding on God's word and having nutritious food. And that's one of the reasons we come here on a regular basis. Verse 17, Paul says, I don't lose heart even though the outer man is falling apart because the inner man is being renewed by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Here's the principle. We are encouraged when we value future glory more than present pain. We are encouraged when we value future glory more than present pain. Paul says, my present pain is momentary. It's temporal. It's brief. It's fleeting. Now, the truth is, Sometimes the pain is so great we feel what? It's never going to end. But the truth is, all our suffering, no matter how severe, all suffering is temporary. You know, the longest that your suffering can last is your lifetime. That's it. 70, 80, 90 years, maybe 100. It's temporary. James says, compared to eternity, our life is what? A vapor. Remember when you were a kid? You'd go outside on these cold winter days, that's when we had cold winter days, and you would exhale, and what would come out of your mouth? Vapor, breath, how long did it last? You'd literally breathe out and you'd see it disappear in front of your eyes. James says, compared to eternity, our life is like a vapor. You breathe it out in a cold day and it disappears almost instantly. Our very own Stan Brewer, who used to attend this church, went home to Jesus here a couple years ago. 
he had a terminal illness and he used to say to me routinely, Brad, this terminal illness is just a speed bump on the way to heaven. It's a speed bump, no worries. It lasted a long time, but it was a speed bump compared to eternity. Paul says our painful pressures, these afflictions, the suffering we're going through are brief compared to eternity, but they're also light. And the word light here, he uses the word, it's like a weightless trifle. It says it's almost too light to measure. How many of you as kids, I haven't seen one in a while, but how many of you as kids used to pick dandelions? Remember dandelions? And you would do what? You blow into dandelion, what happens? They're so light, they float. The, the blossoms float on the breeze. That's kind of a word picture. Paul says, these sufferings, and he had a lot of them, are very brief and they're very light. And what Paul calls light affliction is being beaten five times, being stoned and left for dead, being shipwrecked three times, exhaustion around the clock, rejection, hostility, physical pain, hunger, spiritual concern for the churches, being rejected by the churches he had laid down his life for. Most of us would not call Paul's sufferings light afflictions, would we? He calls them light afflictions because he has an eternal perspective. Paul is viewing today's trials, today's struggles, today's problems, today's suffering through the lens of heaven's glory. He says our momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. The eternal weight of glory, glory means heavy and weighty and solid. And Paul's looking at life like a scale, like a balance scale. And he puts all of life's trials and troubles and suffering and stresses and pains and rejections, he puts that on one side. And then he puts the eternal weight of glory, the heavenly payoff, the triumph, the glories, the rewards, the joys of being with Jesus face to face forever. And he says, heaven's glory outweighs this suffering vastly and quickly, far exceeds the light weight of our earthly pain. Romans 8.18, he gives us a good word. He says, for I consider, that's to think about and to come to a settled conclusion that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed, right? Paul's not denying the reality of pain. He's just denying its importance compared to eternity. He's not saying you don't have pain, you don't have struggle. He understood pain 24-7. He was in pain 24-7. But he said compared to eternity, compared to the glory of knowing Jesus. So the key here is to compare everything in this present life with the glory that is to come. Right? We often look at our lives through this little earthly microscope. Right? We look at the minutia. Who hurt me and my headache? And, and, and I'm not saying none of those are real, but we have a very narrow focus because we're just looking through our little microscope. And we need to step back, look at God's telescope, and get his perspective, his eternal perspective. Without an eternal perspective, you know what life is? Life is a game of trivial pursuit. Very few people I have found in my limited experience look back at the end of their life without some degree of, I wasted a lot of time. 
on stuff that doesn't matter at the end of the day. I find it intriguing, and I would encourage you to do this from time to time. Read the obituaries. We're expected to sum up a life in a few paragraphs. And in that few paragraphs, what really counts? It's interesting to see what the family says is important about that life. Very instructive. Paul says not only does future glory outweigh present suffering, he says one of the benefits of present suffering is that present suffering is producing the eternal weight of glory that you're going to experience later on. The greatest example of suffering turned into glory is who? Jesus Christ, right? The greatest suffering ever, the greatest unjust suffering ever was Jesus Christ on the cross, dying, the innocent for the guilty, the perfect for the sinless, sinful. And the Philippians 2 tells us that as a result of that great suffering, the greatest suffering in the history of the universe, God did what for Jesus? He exalted him and gave him what? The name above every name. The greatest suffering, the greatest glory. The principle here is, is the more you suffer for Christ, the greater your eternal glory. Much honor from Christ in the future entails much suffering for Christ in the present. By the way, there is no glory for suffering from sin. If I sin, Peter says, and I get beat for my sin, there's no glory in that. I had that coming, right? But if I endure suffering, of any kind, and I don't mean just suffering for the gospel, I mean some of us have pains, serious. We have divorces, we have children that are not paying attention, and grandchildren, and people we love, and job stresses, and all the suffering in this life that we just get from being in a broken planet we talked about a couple weeks ago. When we endure that with a commitment to glorify Jesus through it, Paul says there's glory waiting because you're suffering with a commitment to glorify Jesus Christ. And he says, the glory that God has prepared for you in the future will literally blow your mind. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not even entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. One of our challenges with suffering is we are trapped by the visible trinkets of this world because we fail to focus on the invisible treasures of the world to come. Paul says, look at this little planet through the lens of eternity and then you will have an accurate measure of your current pain and suffering. Verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here's the principle. We are encouraged when we value eternal realities more than earthly concerns. When we value eternal realities more than earthly concerns. You'll notice that this, the last three points have all been matters of priority. What do you value more than others? And how does that affect you? 
Paul says, when you look at eternal realities, look at is a conscious decision to focus on. It's a conscious decision to fix your gaze steadily, to concentrate on the things that are unseen, to concentrate on the eternal and don't get distracted by the visible. Have you noticed when you are driving that you will always drive where you look? Wherever your eyes go, that's where you will look. And that's why the people in front of you, you know where they're looking because you know where their car's going. Right, okay. When you're on a motorcycle, you will go whichever way your eyes go and your head tilts. You're going to go that direction, inevitably. So what you pay attention to, you will pursue. Here's the principle. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Because that's where you're going. That's the direction. Colossians 3, 2 Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. Set your mind, says, this is a conscious, deliberate decision. Everything you see here on earth is visible, it's temporal, it's time-related. It had a beginning, and it's going to have an end. The truth is, everything inside the physical universe is temporal. There's an end date, Right? Everything you own is going to the landfill. Everything you own is going to the landfill. It has an end date. Paul says, set your mind on the things above because they're invisible or eternal. They last forever. Now on planet Earth, if you want to know where to prioritize your time and energy, there's only two things on this planet that are eternal. Only two. You have one in your lap called the Word of God. And what's the other? The souls of people. What was that? Oh, taxes. Yeah. There are no taxes in heaven because God doesn't need your money. On this earth, death and taxes. Yes, but it sure feels like they're eternal sometimes, doesn't it? Yes, I get that, yeah. So the word of God and the souls of people are the only two eternal things. So our priority should be getting God's word into people's hearts so they can go to heaven and live forever with Jesus. Paul says, focus on the invisible. Don't get distracted by the visible. And when we see the invisible, we see it through the eyes of faith. Living by faith is, is living based on what God says, not on what we see. Hebrews 11 says, verse 3, by faith. We understand that the worlds were prepared, created by the word of God, so that what is seen is made out of things which are not visible. Paul says this entire space-time matter energy creation has its beginning from an invisible source. God's invisible, and God said, let there be, and it came to be. Every single person you see listed in Hebrews 11 in God's hall of faith saw the invisible by faith. God said of Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 9, By faith Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, because they desire a better country that is a heavenly country. So Abraham lived on earth, 
but he lived as an alien on earth. He knew that this earth was not his home, and we have a picture of that because he lived his entire life, all 175 years of it, in a tent, which is not a permanent dwelling. It's a good picture for us to understand that we're not here long. We're just passing through. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses led Israel out of Egypt into the desert with no means of support, no water, no food, no nothing, only the promise of God that he would bring them into the promised land. See, the reality is most of everything that exists is invisible. How many of you have heard the proverb, I'll believe it when I see it, right? The reality is you don't see very much. We don't see very much. The vast majority of everything is invisible. Paul knew what he was talking about. In the total spectrum of light, the total light spectrum runs from long radio waves to really ultra short gamma rays. Of the total spectrum of light, the human eye can only see 0.0035%. That is way, way less than 1%. So more than 99% of the light spectrum is invisible to us. It's real, but we can't see it. The spiritual universe is far more real than the visible physical universe. This physical universe, the problem with this physical universe is it has an expiration date. Just like you have an expiration date, right? The universe has an expiration date, but the spiritual universe lasts forever. If the only treasure you have is the stuff you see, the visible, tangible stuff, you know what happens when you die? You die bankrupt, right? Because you can't take it with you. That's why Jesus said, lay up for yourselves where? Treasures in heaven. It's like Civil War money. Let's suppose you're living in the deep south. It's 1864, and you have a fortune in Confederate currency. And you're a thinking person, and you say it's 1864. You don't know the war is going to be over in 1865. But you notice that the South is not looking like it's going to win the war. The smart thing to do would be what? Get rid of that Confederate currency and swap it out for either Union money or better yet, gold, because it's going to retain its value after the war is over. In the same way, what? What do we say? Almost everything in this life has how much value when you leave here? Very little. How many of you played the game of Monopoly? When you play the game of Monopoly, you like those $500 bills, right? They're really, really important as long as the game's on. But when you close the box up, have you ever tried to trade that down to the store and buy something with it? It's the same thing when you take your $100 bills here, you won't be able to use them in heaven. So Paul says, focus on the eternal. Exchange your earthly trinkets for eternal treasures. Put your energy into God's word and people. Value that which is eternal. He says, why is that? Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The reality is everyone in this life gets two dates and a dash. You know what two dates and a dash are? Date of birth, date of death, 
And in between is the dash. You know what dash is? This is your life. Now, some of you get a longer dash than others, but at some point, everybody's life on earth comes to an end. Paul says your human body is like a tent. Paul was a tent maker, so he understood tents. We use tents today mostly for portable temporary shelter, like when we go camping, right? You put it up before nightfall. When you're ready to move on to the next campsite, you take it down when you're ready to move on. Even though camping is fun, most of us probably wouldn't want to live in a tent full time, all right? A tent is fragile. It gets torn, uh, lets in rain and cold. The mosquitoes get in. I can attest to that. And it's easily blown over by wind. See, no matter how well built, ultimately a tent deteriorates and it gets thrown away. Tents were never intended to be a permanent dwelling, and the body you're sitting in right now was never intended to be a permanent dwelling either. It was only designed to be a tent. Temporary. You're in temporary quarters. You're living in a tent that has holes, right? Someday, the tent of our body is going to be torn down and dismantled by death, and Paul says, no worries. We have a building from God waiting for us. This eternal building we spent a lot of time talking about two weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 15, it's your resurrection body, right? You're going to receive that from the Lord at the rapture. Now, contrary to a tent, this building from God is a permanent dwelling. It's like a house built on a foundation that's sealed against the wind and the weather and the elements. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a couple of specifications of the earthly tent versus the heavenly building. He says your earthly tent, the one you live in right now, is perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural. The internal building, that resurrection body you're going to get in the future is imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. So the body we have here is designed to live on earth for just a few years. The body we get in heaven is designed to live forever with Jesus. Your current tent is falling apart, Paul says, but that's okay. You're going to exchange it for a much better model. Story is told about an Amish boy and his father who are visiting a shopping mall with their family. Neither this boy nor his father had ever seen an elevator before, and they were amazed at how the silver doors opened and shut. While they were watching wide-eyed, an old lady in a wheelchair rolled up to the moving walls and pressed a button. The walls opened and the lady rolled her wheelchair between them into a small room. The walls closed and the boy and his father watched the small circles of light with numbers above them light up and then reverse light up on the way back down. The walls opened up again and a beautiful 24-year-old woman stepped out. <laughs> The father said to his son, go get your mother. <laughs> We're not going to tell you what she had to say about that. You first, you first yeah. Paul says in verse 2, in this body, this house, this tent, we groan. 
We long to be clothed with a dwelling from heaven. We want to get a new body because this one is breaking. Inasmuch as having put it on, our heavenly body, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, the human body, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that which is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Our earthly tents are fragile, and of course we groan and we sigh and we kind of take care of it. We're kind of like hungry, tired, rain-soaked campers, and we want to pack up our tent and what? Go home where there's a warm shower and a good bed. Paul says we long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. That, the word literally is overclothed. It's like putting on an overcoat. So he's talking about the resurrection body being an overcoat that goes over the top of something that's already in place. That's our soul and our spirit. We talked a couple weeks ago. When you get your new body, people will recognize you. They might have to look more than once, but they will recognize you. Remember when Jesus had his new body, the disciples recognized him, but he was different. Definitely much better. We long to put on our heavenly space suit, our, rec our, our resurrection body. And Paul says we don't want to be naked in the sense of being a disembodied spirit like a ghost. The Bible never ever teaches that heaven will be a place of spirits only where you won't have a body. You will have a body in heaven by design. However, our current bodies cause us pain and we long for our new bodies. Philippians 3 verse 20, Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, that's where we belong, that's home, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject himself all things to himself. So those who follow Jesus are going to get a body like the body Jesus had after his resurrection. It's utterly fascinating to read some of the things Christ did post-resurrection, went through walls, appeared and disappeared. Physical space, time, matter, energy had no boundaries on this body. So we're not sure exactly what your heavenly body will be like, but I guarantee it'll be better than what we have now. All right? It'll be designed to live forever. It won't be subject to the law of entropy. God has promised that death itself will be swallowed up. That's a very interesting word. He uses the word swallowed up. That means engulfed. It means completely consumed. How many of you ever watched nature movies and seen the blue whales and they're eating krill and they just open this maw up and they just envelop and devour and the krill are completely consumed? That's what he's talking about. He says death is going to be completely engulfed in life. It's going to completely disappear by eternal life. Verse 5. Now he, Jesus, who prepared us for this very purpose, his God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. God says, I've prepared your current bodies for life on planet Earth. I've prepared your resurrection bodies for life in heaven. Even though you cannot see what heaven will be like, he says, I've given you a pledge. The Greek word there, adabon, means earnest money or down payment. How many of you ever bought a house? How many of you were old enough to buy a house when they actually required a down payment? I mean, you actually had to put money down. That's, that, that's simply a pledge means I'm putting money down today as evidence, as proof, as promise that more money is to come. I will pay this house off 
and I'm demonstrating my sincerity and my seriousness by giving you a down payment or earnest money. Another picture of that word is an engagement ring. Engagement rings are a promise of more and better to come in marriage. Right? The Marlin's almost on the boat, Kelly. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment to us is God's engagement ring to us that says, this is a promise, a pledge of eternal life, of the delivery of your new bodies in the future. Verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, here, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Here's the principle. We can face death with courage. I probably should have said even courage and joy because Paul was joyful. We can face death with joy and courage because living face to face with Jesus in heaven is better than anything on earth. Getting old is not for sissies. It means facing certain death, but it means facing death with confidence and joy and courage because of what happens after death. See, I was born in Modesto, which is my hometown. Today, I live in Bakersfield, which is home now. Heaven is my future eternal home. So Paul says... I'm home in the body, which means I'm living here right now in this earthly spacesuit. I'm going to be, I would rather be home with the Lord, which means living with the Lord in heaven with my new body. So Paul is living in his earthly home now, but he's homesick for heaven because he longs to see Jesus face to face. If you've ever been separated from your loved ones due to travel, due to job requirements or whatever it happens. If you've ever been separated from your loved ones, you understand how you long to see them what? Face to face in the flesh. Phone calls are good, Facebook is good, FaceTime is good, but nothing, nothing compares with face to face. That's what Paul's talking about, face to face with Jesus. And he says, we've never seen heaven with our physical eyes, but we know that Jesus is there and that Jesus has promised us what's going to happen, then heaven is true. And that's why Paul says we live by faith. Paul says, in light of God's promises about what's to come, far better to leave this body behind and go to heaven. Mercy Me wrote a song called, I Can Only Imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing, Alleluia, will I be able to bespeak at all? I can only... Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly 
beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory. Whatever we can imagine about heaven, whatever we can imagine about being face to face with Jesus, it's like an ant trying to imagine the scale of the Grand Canyon. Beyond comprehension, beyond imagination, far better than we can even imagine. Paul says, because we have this sure promise that we're going to see Jesus face to face, verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home, he's talking about in the body, or absent from the body, at home in heaven, to be pleasing to him. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Here's the principle. Since Jesus is both our Savior and our judge, we should live to please him every day. Since Jesus is both our savior and our judge, we should live to please him every day. And the, the word Paul uses, he uses the word ambition. Ambition means strong desire plus diligent effort. Strong desire plus diligent effort. You can have a strong desire, but if you're not willing to work hard, that's not ambition. Pleasing God should be our ambition. It should be our primary goal for everyone who loves Jesus. Be, you know, have you noticed that you delight to please the one you love? Have you noticed that, any of you? We, we, we automatically please the one we love, the ones we love. We serve for them, we sacrifice for them. But that's not the only reason. The second reason why we want to please Jesus is because he's going to be our judge. Everyone will be judged by Jesus and is not avoidable. Paul is sounding a warning here. He says, be careful how you live today because you will be summoned before the judge's bench to give an account of your actions in this life. The judgment seat of Christ is the Bema seat. B-E-M-A, Bema seat. It's an elevated stone bench and it's where judges sat and they rendered legal decisions, civil and criminal. It also referred to the stone seat where judges of athletic competitions stood. So if you had an Olympic Games, they had Olympic Games or, or the Osminian Games there at the city of Corinth, they would sit on this elevated stone bench and they'd watch the competitions. And that was the place where the competitors, the athletes would come up and they would get their olive wreath, right, for the winners. That Bama seat is where you judged athletic competitions and also judicial matters. It's important to understand the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment for salvation based on works. Salvation is what? A gift of God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can write that down. That's bottom line. So this judgment seat is for the Christian who is already saved. Salvation's been completed already because of Christ's finished work on the cross for you and me. This particular judgment is for Christians who are already going to heaven. They're going to heaven. But this is not a judgment for salvation. It's a judgment for rewards. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul spends a lot of time on this in that chapter. And he compares us as Christians to workers who are constructing a building on a foundation. 
You're building a building and you have a foundation. And he says, Jesus is the foundation. Everything you build is built on Jesus, right? That's the spiritual foundation and the spiritual building. But he says, you as Christians who are going to heaven, be careful how you build on that building. Make sure you use quality materials. Make sure you work diligently. Make sure that your motives are always to exalt the owner of the building, which is Jesus Christ, and not yourself. See, not only what we do in this life, but how we do it and why we do it all count forever. The number of things that Brad Hannock has done for Jesus with the wrong motives is legion. Because if your mission is to exalt yourself, who gets the glory? Paul says, if you do it to exalt yourself, it's going to be burned up at the judgment. It's not that you're not going to go to heaven. You're going to heaven. That's not your work. But the rewards you receive in heaven have everything to do with how you live today. So Paul says, don't waste your life on trinkets. Pursue eternity. Be about your father's business, as Andrew said this morning. We have been saved not to sit, but to serve. And it is a great, great privilege to serve the King of Kings. I'm going to win. I know many of you here serve. Matter of fact, I think almost all of you are busy serving the King of Kings in a variety of capacities. And I want to encourage you to continue that because it matters. It counts. You are serving your king, and he does keep track. He does keep very good books, and he delights to reward you. Our king has entrusted us with a great deal. Matthew 25 says he's going to hold us accountable for how we manage it. You know the number one thing he's entrusted you with? Salvation. That is a great gift, and you and I are to manage that gift. We are to use our salvation, the time we've been given, to reach others for Jesus. God has given us his word. He's entrusted that to us. He's given us a mind that we're expected to use. He's given us bodies that we are to honor him with. He's given us health. He's given us family and friends and work and ministry and home and money and all sorts of things. And we're stewards, aren't we? We don't own it, but we're accountable to manage it for his glory. And he wants to reward us for being a wise manager. So Paul says, set your minds on that which is eternal because what you do here lasts how long? Forever. Forever. He says, live prayerfully, live carefully, and live courageously. So let's summarize before Tom comes. Number one, we are encouraged when we value spiritual maturity more than physical comfort. Now, you know something? This means that there are times that our physical comfort screams to be number one. Live life in the recliner. I ah, just take it easy. Take it easy. Yes, there's time for sleep. Yes, there's time for rest. But what did Pastor Andrew preach about this morning? Spiritual laziness does not honor Jesus Christ. 
Work honors Jesus Christ. When we value spiritual maturity more than physical comfort, then we're willing to be physically uncomfortable because we know it helps produce spiritual maturity. Number two, we are encouraged when we value future glory more than present pain. Paul says the present pain we're currently going through is producing that spiritual glory. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. Number three, we are encouraged when we value eternal realities more than earthly concerns. Eternity lasts forever. Obviously, this earth passes away, and we have been given a few short years to use for eternity. Keep your eye on the big picture. We can face death with courage, and every one of us will face death. How we face death, we have choices. Because living with Jesus face to face in heaven is better than anything here on earth. If you talk to people who are there, if you could get them on your smartphone, and you could talk to them, I promise you they would not say, gosh, I, I, I really miss earth. I want to go back to my, my uh, tent. It's full of holes. Are you kidding? They would say, you really want to be here. You have no idea how much you want to be here. Don't waste your time on trinkets. Pursue treasures. And lastly, since Jesus is both our Savior and our judge, we should live to please him every day. One of the best ways to do that is to ask the Lord to show you. You all have a calendar, right? How many of you have a calendar? If you don't have a calendar, what's going to happen tomorrow will come and someone will say, what day is it? And you'll say, well, I don't know, right? Every day you have your agenda. We've talked about this before. Leave four or five spaces in there, the first four or five, because God's going to mess with your calendar tomorrow. Won't he? There will be some interruptions in the schedule. God is wanting those, those, those first four or five things on the calendar. That's the eternal stuff. That's what counts. You get a phone call from so-and-so and you go, I really don't have time for this. I got to go to the grocery store. No, this phone call is eternal because they need encouragement. Make space in your temporal earthly schedule for the eternal. God's always trying to break into our schedule and encourage us to be about eternal stuff. And we're too busy. Many times. So when you build your to-do list, the first four or five, leave them blank. God will fill them in for you. Okay, thank you for your attention. I know that many of you have taken this to heart and are living on the basis of eternity. My mission today is to encourage us to continue to pursue that. Next week, Lord willing, we'll continue to carry on, so read ahead. And now that you know the truth, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.